Welcome to America, the Beautiful Game, a podcast about soccer in the United States and its relationship with Europe. Each week, Dan Rutstein, head of international at Orange County Soccer Club, sits down with a new guest to talk about a different aspect of the beautiful game on or off the field. Welcome back to America, the Beautiful Game, and I am delighted to have Onoma, uh, a guest on the podcast who... He loves his football or or soccer, depending on what we're calling it. He is the uh, he's a sports writer at the LA Times, specialising in soccer. Welcome to the show, Kevin Baxter. Hello, how are you? It looks like you're coming to me from the uh, world headquarters of the Orange County Soccer Club. Yes, indeed, I am. So your your remit is obviously LA Galaxy, LAFC, Angel City, men's. Well, the U.S. national teams, men's and women's. I know you also cover Mexican national team. You cover the USL, which means you cover Orange County Soccer Club, which, of course, is how we met. Um, plus, just because you work for a, uh, a lauded publication like the LA Times, I know you obviously also cover other sports. Um, so you're a man with an incredibly wide brief, which should make this a, a fun interview. Um, well, yeah. I'm a TV writer now. I just did a story on Welcome to Wrexham, which is not a soccer, uh, football program. It's a TV program, but it's about football. And I've done Ted Lasso, too. So I guess maybe TV. You should add TV in there, too. Fantastic. So um, there's lots of different places we're going to start. I'm going to start uh, just because you're you're literally wearing the Manchester City top tonight. And I love asking Americans this question. Um Obviously, you know, you're not from Manchester. So of all of the teams in England, Scotland or Wales, you could have chosen to support. Why did you pick Man City? And was it only after they became very, very successful? Yes and no. But I I will say I am not from Manchester, but my family history goes back to uh, Nottingham Forest. So I should be I should be a fan of that team. Um, The Manchester City thing came about in a strange sort of way. Um, it's very famous, as you know, in Europe, but especially in England, for fans to be a fan of a a supporter of a team, uh, you know, from cradle to grave. And they do not deviate. If Liverpool has a bad season, you don't become an Everton fan. That is not true in the States, as you well know. If the Dodgers go south, you're going to see all these Dodger fans driving to Anaheim to see the Angels. If (laughs) If the Lakers have a bad season, everyone will become a Clipper fan. That's just the way it is in the States. And and you can be fans of multiple teams in the same sport at the same time. That's not uncommon. It is uncommon in England, of course. So my wife at first became a fan of Manchester United. I don't remember exactly how she became a fan of Manchester United, but she did. I think it was because Chicharito went there and she was a big Chicharito fan. So when Chicharito went to Man City, uh, Man United rather, in 2010, she became a big fan. I actually, as a Christmas gift, when you bought her stock, so she gets a, a check of couple times a year for a, a penny or two pennies because of her stock dividends. So she became a Man United fan and, and sort of in a way of trying to tweak her, I decided I would become a city fan. That seemed to be the natural thing to do. Um, and how, as they would say in TV, hilarity ensued after that. Um, a number of strange things happened. She wound up changing her loyalty to uh, Liverpool because Chicharito left and she started to like Luis Suarez. So she became a Liverpool fan. Then we went to uh, to Liverpool to see a game, and she met some of the communication staff at Everton and uh, Speedo Mick, who's a, a, a you know famous person around uh, Everton. So then she became an Everton fan. I've stayed with Man City to the point where um, this is where the hilarity ensues. I came back from the World Cup in 2014, and 
the, my car, it just literally blew up on the freeway and I had to get a new car and I had to get it quickly. And I went to a dealership and they had a, a horrible sky blue Mustang that just looked ridiculous. It was just way too bright. It was, um, it, it was a ridiculous car. And I went to the salesman and said, how much for this car? And the guy gave me the price. And I made an offer that was even more ridiculous than the car. There's no way they were going to sell me this car for this price. But I thought that would be my way to get out of the showroom. And the guy went to talk to his manager and came back and said, you can have it for that price. Well, at that point, what was I supposed to do? So I took this ridiculous blue car and I made it into the Man City Mobile. It has Man City license plate. It has Man City bumper stickers. It has all kinds of Man City things inside of it. Um, so that's how I dealt with both my the ridiculous idea that I was a Man City fan and that I had this ugly blue car. So that's that's the extent of my Man City fandom. We have Amazing. been to three. We have been to, to to three games there. However, Amazing. No, but you've you've hit the you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the the differences and it's. There's no snobbery or judgment here. It's just a different culture. So when I, I am so often confronted with the question from Americans here, they say to me, who are your EPL team? And I have to explain to them that, A, one doesn't have an EPL team. They just have a team who may or may not play in the EPL. And in my case, AFC Wimbledon play in League Two. So then I have to explain promotion and relegation and the fact we're in the fourth division and, and all that sort of stuff. But I, I love the fact that you've you've done the, the American thing of just – picking a team, but I love the fact you've sort of done the English thing of deliberately picking a team that you're, is the opposite of your wife. That feels like the sort of thing that people in England would do just to spite a relative. So that's a, uh, I like that. Um, so look, let's talk, let's talk football in Los Angeles. So I think your average British person has probably heard more about the LA Galaxy than they have probably any MLS team, partly because obviously they have won the trophy five times. But um, I think more than that, it's because obviously then of Beckham and then uh, obviously then Gerard and Robbie Keane and all that sort of stuff. So, and then, and then the football landscapes change because of obviously LAFC coming. So can you give us a bit of a sort of what it's been like for you covering probably the most famous team in the MLS and then how that picture has changed in recent years. Yeah. When I started covering soccer here, uh, when I moved over from baseball and started doing soccer, it was around 2010, just after the World Cup in South Africa. And it was interesting at that World Cup. I remember I had an LA Galaxy t-shirt on and in the hotel, I went down to the convenience store to buy something. And all the workers in the convenience store started pointing at the shirt and screaming, LA Galaxy, David Beckham. And this was in South Africa at a time when MLS did not have the global uh, footprint that it does now. So they knew the Galaxy and they knew the Galaxy because of David Beckham. Um, the Galaxy at that time under Bruce Arena who was a coach and general manager. They were extremely ambitious. As you mentioned, they got, went out and got David Beckham. They went out and got Robbie Keane, which really completed the package. Everyone thought Beckham was the guy. Um, and Tim Laiwiki, who was president of AEG, the Galaxy's parent company at the time, said Beckham was never the guy. Beckham was never the guy we were going to build around. He was a midfielder. He's not going to score a lot of goals. Robbie Keane was the guy that they always had in mind that they wanted. So they get Beckham. He's the guy that's going to feed Robbie Keane. They also have Landon Donovan. And, and of course, it worked. They made eight straight playoff appearances, uh, went to MLS Cup final four times, won it three times. They're five-time uh, MLS champions. Uh, 
the ambition didn't stop there. If you you may or may not remember, they went out shortly after that and got Ashley Cole. They got Nigel Young, Stephen Gerrard. They brought in Giovanni Dos Santos. They were an ambitious club that knew what they wanted and had the means to go out and get it. That's totally changed. That changed when Bruce Arena left. Um, in my mind, covering the team closely, I think what happened is Bruce was getting so much credit deserved for what he had done. He had taken a team when he came in 2008 that had Landon Donovan, that had David Beckham, and wasn't winning. He completely turned around the atmosphere in the dressing room, turned around the, the way the team thought of itself, had some great success, and got credit for that. So when Bruce left, the front office people that were left, they decided that they wanted to prove that it wasn't Bruce Arena all along, that the, 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 the organization was just that good. And so basically they got rid of the entire roster that Bruce Arena had had, decided to go young with the academy players, and they've not recovered from that. Since 2016, they've made the playoffs once, uh, won one game and lost one game. That's it. They've had they've lost more games than they've won over the last five years. That's never happened in Galaxy history. They completely wasted two years of Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brilliance. They, they made the playoffs one time and had a losing record the other season. Um, so uh, it, it hasn't worked out. And then what happens, stepping into that void as the Galaxy are struggling and really losing their way and losing their identity, what happens? LAFC comes along. They are an ambitious team. They do have a deep pocket in front office. They have a beautiful downtown stadium. Um, in my mind, they've done everything right. In 2019, they won the Supporter Shield, best record in the league. Uh, they had Carlos Vela as their designated player. He broke the MLS record for uh, goals in a season. Um, they broke the MLS, MLS record for points, uh, for goal differential. They tied the record for goals scored with 85 in a 34-game season. They did everything right. They're doing it again this year. They're going to break all the same records this year. They're on their way to another supporter shield. They're on their way to another points record. They're probably going to break the modern-day record for victories. And how are they doing it? They're doing it with Gareth Bale, with Giorgio Cellini. They still have Carlos Vela. They brought in Kellen Acosta, U.S. national team midfielder. Their general manager, John Thornton, has been amazing. As it puts everybody, it reminds me of Bruce Arena, doing the impossible. Um, and LAFC clearly is, is LA's team. Now, you can talk about the Galaxy history, but if you're talking about performance on the field, it's LAFC. And then you have to add to that because this is the U.S., because this is a country where women's soccer in many ways is almost as big as men's soccer. We have Angel City now, a team with a Hollywood A-list of owners. Um, it's got a lot of attention for that. Got a lot of attention at plays in the same stadium with uh, as LAFC, Bank of California Stadium. Um, they're not winning right now. They're at just barely hanging on to uh, some hopes of making the playoffs. But they're, they're sort of changing the paradigm of, of soccer in Los Angeles as well. So we really have three first-class teams, two that are doing pretty well right now, and then the Galaxy sort of bringing up the rear. Yeah, uh, great. Thank you for the sort of the quick version of, I guess, LA soccer history. So what what is the analogy? Is it maybe Manchester United, Manchester City? Now, obviously, I know City were great, you know, very early on, but then they sort of disappeared, fell out of the top league. Man United were the most well-known team in the world, I think, uh, maybe arguably with Barcelona in football. And then obviously... I know it's because of money, but City came in and it's not just the money. I mean, I've been to City's facility. It's not just, you know, a beautiful stadium. Their training grounds are amazing. What they've done to the local community is amazing. You know, they've really built something there. So is the Galaxy LAFC thing like the modern day Man United-Man City relationship? Do you think it is someone's come to knock them off? 
I'd go about 45 minutes outside Manchester and go to Liverpool and say it's more like Liverpool, Everton. Everton, a once uh, a, a once very good team. I don't think they were ever a dominant team like the Galaxy were, but they were once very good. They were iconic. They had a beautiful home. Um, you know, again, iconic stadium. They had tradition. They had a past. They had a philosophy. That was the Galaxy. Now you see Everton has really lost their way. They've gone through a number of different coaches. They almost got relegated. They're moving into a new stadium. Their tradition um, uh, and, and all that is gone now, I think, at, at Everton. They're trying to recapture it. That's what the Galaxy is trying to do. They're trying to hold on to it, but it's slipping through their fingers. I think that's the Galaxy. Um, LAFC is a lot like Liverpool. Now, LAFC is younger, but the idea of spending money, spending money wisely, making the right moves, hiring the right coaches. You know, you've seen the Galaxy gone through five coaches in the last four seasons, kind of like Everton, right? Going through a lot of coaches in a short period of time. Why the other team in uh, LAFC had Bob Bradley for four seasons. Liverpool still has Jurgen Klopp. So I, I, I think that's the analogy. Liverpool, not like Man City. You know, Man City just, uh, it, you're right, they do uh, do a lot of things right, but they do have this beautiful training ground. They do have really deep-pocketed owners. They can go and throw money at problems. Um, Liverpool's not like that, nor is LAFC. Both those teams spend money, but they spend it very, very wisely. You rarely see them make a mistake on a player that doesn't work out. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the footballing landscape here. So in 2010, I think you said it was, when you, when you switched from baseball to football, you know, I imagine in the sort of world of uh, the sporting circuit, if you said to people, I'm, I'm switching from baseball to football, they'd be like, oh, that, that feels like a poor assignment. And now, you know, in 2022, with in a post-Ted Lasso America, for want of a better way of describing it, you know, in a World Cup year, football's an incredibly different game in terms of the money, that new Apple deal for MLS. So when you started in 2010, what what sort of kudos did one get as a football writer compared to where we are 12 years later? Oh, well, even 12 years later, it hadn't changed that much. And, and I, I was one of those people who say, oh, boy, I'm covering soccer. I really got demoted. Um, I wound up covering soccer. I got sent to the World Cup that year to cover Mexico because I speak Spanish and our regular soccer writer did not. Uh, came back, he retired, and they said, oh, well, you've been to a World Cup, you get soccer. No, I did not want that. I didn't understand the sport. I didn't appreciate it. Um, I had people trying to teach me the positions. This guy is a center back. This guy's a defensive midfielder. This guy's an attacking midfielder. And I would throw my hands up and say, when they kick the ball, they all run around anyways. It doesn't really matter. It's not like baseball where the left fielder stays in left field, right? Everybody runs around. So um, I, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't try to appreciate it. To me, it was uh, it was just something that I got paid to do. Um, I got more and more into it. And, and my wife really helped. The Man United fan really helped. There used to be an analog, uh, anthology show on, on uh, I guess it was on Sky Sports that we used to get in our cable package that we don't get anymore. And it was a review of, of uh, EPL games from the previous week. And it was a fantastic show. It was really well done. And my wife would watch that. And she would start saying things like, oh, wow, look, Suarez is still favoring his left ankle. He must still be hurt. Or she would say, oh, look, David De Gea is not getting off the line very quickly anymore. And I thought, oh, my God, my wife knows more about football than I do. And so I had to sort of pick it up. And and. More and more, I start to get into it, and now I'm a complete addict. I've totally changed, and and people like Dave Sarakin, who used to be assistant coach with the Galaxy and the U.S. national team, he's now the uh, head coach for the Puerto Rican national team. He told me he he predicted ten years ago. This, he said it's going to happen. You're going to get bit. You're going to get the virus. You're going to love soccer. 
and, and it's happened now. The landscape, you, you're you're very right. I think um, maybe this is the Hollywood perspective or Hollywood snobbery, but I think you're very right to look at Ted Lasso and now we have Wrexham um, in in helping to increase the popularity of soccer. Um, I'll go about this in a little bit, maybe roundabout way, but Sunil Gulati, who used to be the president of U.S. Soccer, he also a lecturer at Columbia University in New York, and he, the his the way that he looks at this, the way he judges soccer popularity is the number of students that come to his class wearing soccer jerseys. And he said it's increased exponentially in the last 10 years. And that to, to him says young people are beginning to find soccer. And and the numbers tell us that the demographic for soccer fans is very young, which means it's going to grow as baseball fans, horse racing fans. Those people begin to die off or, or lose interest. The younger generation is going to fill that void. And right now, those people are soccer fans. That's why you see so much soccer going to streaming. But other things like Ted Lasso, it's not a show about soccer, but soccer is part of the show. And I think people look at that and say, this sport is fun. It's quirky. It's interesting. Look at these guys can laugh at themselves a little bit. It's not as serious as maybe NFL or NBA. This is fun. Welcome to Wrexham, which is the new show coming up on FX, in which two American actors, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney, buy a team in the National League, the fifth division of British soccer, they buy Wrexham. Um, really, it's a docu-series, and it really gets into the nuts and bolts of the team, but uh, much more the community around the team and what soccer means to that. And it's a it's a fun show. It debuts on Wednesday. Um, it's a fun show. People are really going to get into it, and I think it gets at the heart of European soccer. That that's That's well and good. And another thing that maybe people haven't really appreciated, the video game, FIFA, the FIFA World Cup video game, that has brought more converts to soccer in the U.S. than probably any other medium. People play that game. That's how the Ted Lasso series started. Jason Sudeikis uh, and, and one of the other people involved in the show hated soccer, and they were in Europe working on a, with an improv group, and they decided that uh, to pass the time, they bought a video game, a video game console. The only video game they could get in the Netherlands was a soccer game. They hated soccer, but they started playing it, and they really got into it. And now we have Ted Lasso as a result of that. So the the EA Sports soccer games have really got people into soccer as well. People in Europe are not going to believe that. People who grew, again, went cradle to grave with the same team, thinking that a goofy TV show, a comedy, and a video game could get you into soccer and make you a fan. But that's exactly how it happened here. No, it's I mean, you're absolutely right on, I think, on all of that. Um, and it's interesting because it's sort of a version of that plays the other way. So when I was a kid, I played Madden. I'm going to age myself now. It would be <laughs> like 97 or whatever it was, probably 90-something. But I played American football on my first PlayStation on my Sega Mega Drive. And I knew more about American football as a result of playing that game. So I think it... And we don't grow up with it in the same way. So I think it, it you know, it sort of plays both ways, but I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the the Ted Lasso phenomenon has, has been extraordinary um, over and, here. And, and I would argue, you mentioned uh, the MLS deal, which is the richest deal they've ever had, the TV deal. I think it's $250 million um, coming right before the World Cup when we expect the World Cup bounce, especially with the 2026 World Cup here. But my point would be, Apple TV had not done live sports before that I know of, or at least not this ambitiously. I think you can make the argument that Ted Lasso, again, a show that is not about soccer, but has soccer in it, 
I think Apple looked at that and said, you know, people didn't run away. People stayed. People watched the show. It got more popular as it went on. They knew it was about soccer and they stayed. I really think that entered into Apple's thinking, at least in a small way, to say, let's buy MLS. There's a market here for these fans. Fans want to come and see soccer content. We already got them for Ted Lasso. Let's cross market this thing. A hundred percent. And it's interesting. I had on, on one of my other podcasts, I did one about Hollywood, and I had Bill Lawrence, the executive producer of Ted Lasso on, and he was telling us that when they tried to sell the show, no network was interested. They tried all of the networks, including, you know, NBC, where the Ted Lasso character began as a promo for the Premier League. And no by the way, anyone listening to this who haven't seen those promos, Google those. There, there's three of them, I think. There's one that's outtakes and two that NBC aired. They're hilarious. I, I guess you've seen them. I think they're the funniest thing I've ever seen. Absolutely. But the, they, no one thought it could translate into a whole show. And Apple believed them. And they went ahead and obviously they made this show. And I think you're right that it's made a difference. A friend of mine is a writer and he's got a football movie he's been trying to pitch for years. And it's never really gotten any traction. And now it's getting real traction because I think people have realized that football or at least football adjacent storytelling is going to work here in the way that people have been making baseball movies and basketball movies and American football movies for for years. So the, the landscape has definitely changed. One question I want to ask you, this is a little bit inside baseball, I guess, um, as it were, but obviously I used to be a sports journalist in my first career as well. I'm glad you got out. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) From a writer's point of view and, you know, the sort of craft of sports journalism, baseball, very stat heavy, you know, four or five times a week that your team you might be covering would be playing. Obviously, the games go on for a very long time. Football, you know, one game every week to 10 days, 90 minutes, much less stat heavy, although there's a lot more stats than there were. Just from a sort of, forget how much you enjoy the sports, from the, the craft of sports journalism, which is actually easier to cover, baseball or football? Well, they both have their good and their bad. I love the fact that soccer is over in two hours, less than two hours. Um, um, and I love the fact it's once, maybe twice, at the most, three times a week, uh, perhaps in a World Cup setting and group play. Uh, baseball, as you said, can go on forever. Sometimes they play 18 or 19 innings and it rains and then they have to come back and finish the game the next day. It's like cricket. Um, and there's and there's, there's, there's no potential end to it. Um, one thing with soccer is you can't take your eye off the field. And that way, it's a little bit like hockey. And I've heard people call soccer dirt hockey um, in that you never know. It could It's a scoreless game. Nothing's happening. Then all of a sudden, a bolt out of the blue and uh, someone scores a goal and the game's decided. And if you dropped your pen and bent down to pick it up and miss the goal, you know, again, you take your eye off the field for one second. Um, so soccer, I like the, the time element. I like the fact that it's fast, that it's exciting. Um, I wonder that, you know, people talk about, oh, soccer is not exciting. There's no goals. Look, it's a one to nothing game. How boring. But yet they will wax eloquently about a one to nothing, no hitter in baseball, a game in which actually nobody did anything. And it was the greatest game they've ever seen. But somehow soccer doesn't live up to that. Um, What I do like about baseball is I do like the stats, because when when I'm crafting a story, I think about um, a lawyer perhaps putting together a legal brief for a court case. Um, you have a, a something that you're trying to prove, and then you lay, you know, you you put stats in there or information or facts in the case of a lawyer to buttress your point. So if I'm writing a story about the Dodgers and I say the Dodgers have the best pitching staff in the major leagues, 
I, I just can't say that. I have to prove that. And then I can go to all the stats and lay out the st statistical argument as a lawyer would with facts. I like that about baseball. I try to do it with soccer, but again, it doesn't work. Sometimes you say, oh, Liverpool dominated this game. Look at the time of possession. They had the ball three quarters of the game, but they lost four to nothing. So that argument goes out the window because they lost the game. Um, so I do like that. The other thing I like about baseball is there is a rhythm to it. Um, and when you're covering baseball on a regular basis, it's about 20, 25 seconds between pitches. And you'll actually see everybody in the press box, they'll write for a few uh, for 20, 15, 20 seconds, look up, watch the pitch, then go back down and write again. And it's, it's a rhythm that you sort of fall into. Um, so it makes it easier to write because there's always something to write. Again, in a soccer match, you may sit there for 90 minutes. Somebody scores in stoppage time. That's the only goal. You have nothing written because nothing's happened so far. So there's there's good and bad to both. Um, uh, one thing about baseball, though, with soccer, again, the number of games a week, uh, most of your, uh, of your reporting is done uh, at training sessions or, or other arranged interviews. In baseball, it's a game every day. It becomes a lifestyle. I do not know or I know a very few regular baseball writers who have not been divorced at least once. Um, and it's the travel is one thing, but the games start at seven. They end at 11. You go down and you talk to the coach and players. That's another hour or so. The clubhouse is open for us to do interviews for a seven o'clock game. They'll open at three 30 means you got to be at the stadium at two 30. You can see right now you're at the stadium. Are you leaving home at one 30 and getting home at one 30? And you're doing that 162 times a year. Yeah, and it's obviously I when I was a reporter, I knew a lot of divorced. I knew more divorced sports journalists than I did any other category of divorced person. And even with football, it was in England. It's the travelling. It's you know, it's obviously not the same because the game's much shorter and the distances. Actually, now I live in America, they don't seem like a long way. You know, you go from London to Manchester on a Wednesday night. You you get home that night. You know, you don't stay over. You get the last train home or you drive back. Um, but there were a lot of people who got divorced because they were working, you know, even in midweek evenings and weekends, which is meant to be family time. But the baseball, basketball world, I just, I mean, I work in professional soccer now. We have a game, you know, every week, but we haven't got a home game for two weeks. It's quite nice. I can't imagine being involved in baseball or basketball where there's multiple games a week and then, you know, you play a game and then you fly that night to get to the next place because you're playing somebody the next day in the Midwest. It's, it's, it seems crazy. Well, and it never ends. I mean, I know soccer has the transfer windows and you pay attention during those transfer windows, but then after that, you can kind of let your attention lapse a little bit. Baseball will start with spring training in February. So in the middle of February, you're at spring training, you go all the way through to the end of the world series, which it's going to be the first week in November. So you're working every essentially on call or working every day from middle of February to the 1st of November. Well, what happens after that? In the middle of November is something called the general manager's meetings. Um, it's where all the general managers of the teams get together at some resort somewhere and they talk about trades. Well, you need to go to that because you never know. Maybe your star player is going to be traded. Then comes the winter meetings, which is an even bigger deal. That's in December, early December. That's where other trades are made. Players are signed, not signed. There's a draft. All kinds of stuff happens. That takes you right up to the middle of December. Then you get a month and a half off, and now you got to get ready for spring training again. Oh, and by the way, during that month and a half off, that's when all the big players change teams, when all the free agents move from one team to the other. So, uh, I, you know, I can't tell you the number of times where I've stayed home when I covered baseball, stayed home writing a, a feature or doing interviews, and then go out to dinner with my family and get a phone call and say, oh, your star player has just been traded, press conference in 15 minutes. you got to get over there. 
that was almost normal. So the irony is, you know, a Manchester City fan being married to a Manchester United fan could be grounds for divorce. But actually, you were more likely to get divorced if you'd stayed in, in <laughs> that's, baseball. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about, uh, we've talked about MLS. Let's talk about American national team. So, I mean, the women's team's easy to talk about in the sense that they're the best in the world. They have been for a long time. They win all the time. That's amazing. So let's talk about the men because obviously the history of the men's national team is much less impressive. Well, so, but, but before we jump to the men, just uh, your point on the women. Yes, the U.S. has been ranked number one in the world almost since the inception of the rankings. They've won three World Cups. Um but things are changing a little bit, and it's it's for the good of the game. NWSL is still the best league in the world, but the, uh, the, the leagues in Spain and Germany and England are starting to catch up. Why? Because they're starting to get you – know, money's coming into it. Barclays coming into it. You know, in, in Spain, Barcelona started paying its women's players decent wages. They opened La Masia to women's players. And what happened? They went 30-0 and this season in the league play and made it to the, to the um, Champions League final where they finally lost uh, the English national team. They just played the euros and, and, and uh, the women's euros and they got a record crowd of over 70,000 in Wembley for the final. They averaged 18,000 for the 31 games of that tournament, which were played in multiple countries. I can remember the 2012 Olympics in London um, where women's football was played all over England. I remember going to uh, old Trafford for us Canada, which is a semifinal game and fans were, apoplectic that women were allowed to play on this sacred grass where men had played. They, there was a movement to get the women's games banned from these stadiums because this is men's football. That's how women's football is looked at then. Um, you know, now you see Europe is going crazy for it. Mexico starting to invest. The U S is still the top team. And I think probably will be for a little while, but remember they haven't won an Olympic gold medal in the last two Olympics. They've made the final every other Olympics up to that. they, we're knocked out in the sum in the quarterfinals, excuse me, in by Sweden in, in Rio. And then in Japan, they lost in the third place game, or they lost to Canada and, and wound up going to the third place game. Canada is now the Olympic champion. The US is the World Cup champion. So the rest of the world is starting to catch up to the US. There's starting to be investment players are starting to get treated with some respect, they're starting to get better coaching. That's all for the good. Um and 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 I think even people in the US will say it makes us better too, because now we got to step it up. No, absolutely, I agree. It's great for the women's game, and it's interesting because you know, when the Lionesses won the Euros, the crowd for that final was the biggest crowd for men's or women's European Championships. Um, and then, though I understand, they agreed quite quickly a friendly against the the US women, and that sold out Wembley faster than any game has sold out Wembley before. Um, so I think, you know, that game, I think it's in October, and there'll be probably another record crowd, which is which is great for everybody. And it'll be a real now, test if we can beat America in that. Now, remember, this is a uh, of the third, of the semifinal game in the last World Cup, 2019, in Leon, US, and, and England. If you remember when Alex Morgan scored a goal in that game, what did she do? She did the the sort of mocking of the drinking of the tea. Yes. Well, it's interesting because when they announced this game would be played in October, U.S. and England in Wembley, they, they put a poster up. And the largest figure in that poster is Alex Morgan with the fake tea glass. Um, England is taking this game quite seriously. Absolutely. No, it'd be great. So let's talk about the men. And there's obviously an, yeah. an English element to that. So obviously the World Cup is this year. You know, it should have already happened, but it didn't because it's in November this time around. Fascinating group. 
because uh, you know I think Wales spoiled the the narrative, and it really should be Ukraine there for lots of reasons. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to see that game so bad, but the US would have lost that game, and they would have been eliminated in group play if it had happened. So maybe it's all to the good. So you're playing England, which historically is a, an interesting fixture. You know, we should obviously beat you because we invented the game. Oh, remember but... Rustenburg? Remember <laughs> Rustenburg? Yeah. So this is the thing is, English people love mocking the Americans because, you know, we invented the game. You have all your terminology wrong still. And we are think we are still better than you. But I, I think this World Cup, it's too soon for America. Obviously, your, your team is very different. You know, you've got more kids playing in the Champions League than you've ever had before. But I think this World Cup's too soon. But... The next World Cup, when it's here, is that the year that America gets to the semi-final or the final? Well, when you talk about England, remember the U.S. beat England in 1950 and then were summarily booted from the World <laughs> Cup for another 40, 44 years. Indeed. Or 40 years, couldn't come back. And then Rustenburg, the game in South Africa, the 1-1 draw, which was key to the U.S. actually going on. Yeah, just because the pitch wasn't flat and our goalkeeper just misunderstood the grass. So that was that should never have happened. Yeah, he looked like a shortstop letting the ball roll through his, <laughs> his legs. But when you talk about the U.S. team, you're absolutely right. This U.S. team is the youngest team, will be the youngest team in the World Cup. They did pretty well in World Cup qualifying um, to you know to get in. It's the same team. I don't expect there'll be any major changes. Um, but it is the youngest team in the World Cup. I, I do think they have a group that can get out of group play, get to the round of 16, maybe get a, another lucky bounce and get through to the quarterfinals. I, I don't think that's beyond the possibility for this group. But you're absolutely right. This group is built for 2026. The World Cup will be here. The World Cup, all the knockout stage games will be in the U.S. The final could be here in L.A. at SoFi Stadium. It's getting a lot of heat around that stadium now. So the U.S. needs to do well. And Canada is no different. Canada won the regional World Cup qualifying tournament. They also have a very young team with people like Alfonso Davies. Um, They're they are building for 2026 as well. Mexico is going the other way. They're going to be crap this tournament in Qatar. And I don't think they have much hope of putting together a really competitive team in four years. So Mexico taking a completely different path. But the Canada and especially the U.S., this team is built for 2026. Look at the core of the team. Pulisic, 22. Uh, Weston McKinney is young. Ser- Serginho Detz. Uh, Gio Reyna, I think, is still a teenager. Um this team is a at the core of the team. Now there's some people around it that are a little bit older, um, Paul Ariola, you know, Jack Steffen, and people like that. But the core of the team is very, very young, and it and and the idea of having this team together for, you know, for six years and getting to the World Cup of 2026, that's what they're really pointing to. I, I do think this team can do well in Qatar. Um, if they win the first game against Wales, which is winnable, I think Ukraine would not have been. If they win that first game. It doesn't really matter too much what happens against England uh, because I think the U.S. would be favored to then beat Saudi Arabia and would go on to the next round. Um, The problem now, though, uh, and I wrote about this last week, when you look at what's going on in Europe, Pulisic's not starting for Chelsea. He's coming off the bench. He's getting minutes, but very few. Um, Gio Reyna's hurt. Weston McKinney's been hurt. Uh, Tim Way has been hurt. Um, Some of their best U.S. players, the ones they depend on most, are hurt. And the ones that aren't hurt, like Ricardo Pepe, they're not playing. So uh, U.S. has a chance of getting to Qatar with a team that's not match fit. 
Yeah. Now, interesting. And you actually mistakenly said Saudi Arabia instead of Iran. Uh, Iran, which, I'm sorry. Uh, arguably are interchangeable in uh, some senses, although not in a football sense. But I would um, argue <laughs> Iran might, might, might actually be a, a, a more difficult team to beat. But it, again, my, my point being, I, I kind of think when you look at the world rankings, this is the group of death. This is the one with them. I think Iran's ranked or was ranked 27th in the, in the 20s. Yeah. Um, um, that is a more... It, it, a more difficult game than Saudi Arabia would have been, and you're right, I misspoke. But I still think when you look at the the way the group is set up, beat Wales. You know, England's going to be a tough game. If you can't beat them, you really should win that third match and go on. Yeah, I mean, look, I think for America, it's the group of death. For England, it's the group of life. Nice, easy draw for us. Um, so look, um, we could do this all day. I find I find it fascinating. Uh, I love I love the fact that you were a reluctant football journalist and now it's obviously consuming your life in all the ways that football consumes many people's lives but unfortunately we've we've reached the end of the podcast but I do have to ask you the final question which we ask every guest and there's nobody more qualified to to answer this question I'm fascinated to hear what you say to the question of if you could change one thing about football in America what would it be oh my god that's an impossible question. Um, I, I have no answer for that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would change. Um, th- that, that you can't just spring that question on me and expect a, a <laughs> so, coherent answer. I'll, I'll give you. I mean, so I actually put that question in, expecting every guest to just say promotion and relegation. Um, and of the twenty-seven guests we've had, I think three people have, but we've had people. Uh, complain about pay to play for youth. Um, we had a great one that I had Adam Richmond on last week, um, the man versus food guy, whose answer was we need to have soccer players like in TV adverts um, because that will help grow the game because it's all basketball that, that's, stars. I, that's um, absolutely right. No one knows what Christian Pulisic looks like, much less yeah. Tim Way or Weston McKinney. The no. promotion and relegation thing, I'm going to bat that one down because you're sitting in uh, OCSC's offices right now they they deserve to be promoted last season, no question. And some MLS teams deserve to go down. But the problem is in England, you have like 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 Wrexham. They're playing in a stadium that's two hundred years, two hundred and twenty years old. The game was there before TV, before broadcast, uh, before radio, before any of these revenue streams. So if you are a team like Charlotte and and your owner paid three hundred and fifty million dollar expansion fee to get into MLS, you're going to tell them in one year. You may be playing your games, uh, your road games in a fo- uh, high school football stadium in Oklahoma. People are not going to invest in the product that way. So no. I, I, I think the economic model in the U.S., you're right. There needs to be a fire lit under these last place teams. Absolutely. And there should be some sort of penalty for not being competitive. But I don't think promotion and relegation works here because of the financial model. No, and it's interesting because the promotion and relegation, it feels like the most fundamental problem with soccer in America. But if you start where you are today, it's impossible. And, you know, from a purely selfish point of view, Orange County Soccer Club, last year, USL champions, there's an argument we could be aggrieved that there's no route up to the next level. But how are we going to play MLS games in a 5,000-seat stadium? It just doesn't It work. But actually, this year, we've not had a great year. We're second from bottom of our division. Now, we definitely don't want promotion <laughs> relegation because we could go down to USL League One and, as you say, be playing in front of 300 people and a dog in some college stadium somewhere. So we wanted it when we won the league. We don't want it when we're not winning the league. And that is the problem. The model, the finance doesn't work. And don't knock dogs. They're 
they're they're very faithful uh, soccer fans. Um, the the other thing you mentioned though, the pay to play, it was interesting when Zlatan was here. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't need any money, right? Uh, he can pay to have his kids do whatever they want to do, but he t- but he also grew up very poor, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as a as an immigrant in Sweden, um, and he knows you know the value of money, even though he he can you know burn what he has now. He made that point. He said, I tried to get my kid in a local soccer league here in the U.S. And he goes, I couldn't believe what it costs. And yeah. It's like, I can pay it. I can pay it for the whole team, but it's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And it's a barrier to getting kids into the game. And if you go to look at some inner city neighborhoods uh, where people maybe can't afford that, they can walk down to the local junior high and play basketball. And you see all these great NBA players coming out of some of these uh, uh, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. How about if those kids played soccer? How about if there was an avenue for them to play soccer? Um, what, you know, would we be having a Paul Pogba or Kevin De Bruyne or someone like that playing for the national team now? So, look, we've talked around. So I, I, you're not allowed to not answer the question. You're a journalist. You know how this works. Okay. I'm asking a question. I want an answer. So we've talked around it. So now you've, you've bought yourself some time now. So Kevin Baxter. If you could change one thing about football in America, what would it be? I think maybe the development, the developmental system. In, in Europe, it seems to be very good. You go into an academy at a very young age and progress. MLS has tried to do that, but remember we had uh, we had the reserve teams. Then they went into USL. Now they're going to have MLS Next Pro. We had the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation academies all over the world. They disbanded those. MLS was supposed to take that over. There doesn't seem to be a linear path, an easy-to-follow path. There doesn't seem to be – I think a lot of kids don't know, where do I enter the system? Uh, do I start with AYSO? Uh, in a sense, the women's side has done much better with that because for years they didn't have a real pro league to play for. They were trying to get into college, and that was their developmental system. And it was clear – a girl like Alex Morgan started with AYSO, worked up to, uh, uh, you know, a not a semi-pro team, but a club team, worked her way up into college, and then got to play for the national team. It was very clear. I, I don't see that on the men's side. I don't see a path that everyone – if you live in Kansas City, it's going to be different than if you live in Dallas. And and FC Dallas is one a program that seems to have gotten it right when you look at the number of players they've sent to Europe. So – and, and – and OCSC is part of that um, with their path to the pros, pathway to the pros. Um, but yeah, I think that's one thing that I would, in every other sport, there seems to be a uh, um, a model that you can follow. Minor league baseball, you know, college football gets you to the NFL. I don't see that in soccer. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of guys, Jurgen Klinsmann, he was coach of the national team, said going to college is a waste of time. You need to be playing in an academy at 17. Well, what academy? What city? Where? Who's going to pay for that? And, of course, Jurgen Klinsmann's kid went to college. So there you go. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Kevin, that was great. That was a great answer and well worth waiting for. So, look, Kevin Baxter, reluctant football journalist, uh, <laughs> but now uh, getting to go to the World Cup again. Um, thank you very much for being part of my podcast. Thanks for having me on.